Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with writer and playwrights and a cultural critic. I don't know. You're like, how would you even describe yourself now? Oh, I'm a writer. Right, writer? That's all I got. Uh, Libby Evans. Is it Emmons? It or, is. It is Emmons. Mm-hmm. Okay. I heard somebody miss, like, pronounce it. That it's happens like, a lot. Emmons. I don't know why people do that. I like Emmons, like a Siemens or something. Yeah, there's like, like just an E at the top with two yeah. M's. I mean, there's no well, how reason do you, to... they even do that? I don't know. There's no reason to do that. But. Yeah. So, uh... Tell us a little bit about yourself. How would you describe oh yourself? Uh, um, let's see. I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been writing a lot lately for several different outlets. Um, Post Millennial here in Canada, The Federalist in there in Washington, um, Spectator. I think they're in Boston. Uh, Quillette in Australia, and I recently wrote for the American Conservative, and that was funny. <laughs> and uh, I've also written for Arc Digital. I've also, okay. yeah, I think I've written for other places also. So is this writing sort of um, for wide audience, is this what you've always done or is this kind of a new thing? This is a new thing. Mostly I started doing this in January <laughs> wow. of this past year. I'd been writing for The Federalist prior to that here and there, but mostly I'd been doing theater. I'm okay. not doing, I'm not really doing theater anymore. So I kind of <laughs> yeah we we yeah, may we yeah. may get into why that um, is the case. I so I pretty well well switched to doing this kind of writing, and it's fun. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, no, it's yeah. A, you you write great stuff. I mean, the, the first is a, and so much ground I want to cover, but uh, the first thing I want to talk about is your fantastic piece on the transhumanist movement that I published uh, just about a year ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. I. I, I I found that very, very, your sort of critique of transhumanism. So uh, maybe you could just sort of tell our listeners, what do you think transhumanism is Uh and what is your sort of critique of it? Okay. Um, Well, that was the beginning of my whole crazy year this year is when I published that transhumanism. So the idea that I had was that there are actually undercurrents to transhumanism in Western culture that are really strong and we're not really paying that much attention to them. Transhumanism is the idea that human beings need to intentionally evolve into a the next phase of humanity in order to 
continue life as we know it, or not as we know it, continue some new form of life. So that's basically what transhumanism is. It's rebranded now as Humanity Plus, and they're mostly focused on life extension. That's kind of how they talk about it. But the original ideas were that we could liberate ourselves from human limitation. Things like liberation from reproduction, which would be, you know, anything from birth control to artificial womb technology, like Brave New World, pod people type things. There's... um. Um, removal of the limitations of the human body. So, for example, if you want different limbs, limbs that function better, intentional organ transplants, not because your organs are failing, but because you want better ones kind of thing. Um, And then the idea that there could be liberation from the body itself where your consciousness could continue on without you. So what I started talking about was that uh, this was basically answering the mind-body dualism question and saying, yes, the mind and body are completely different, which the older I get, the more time I spend as a human being, the more I realize that I am a body as much as I am a mind. For a very long time, I kind of just thought my body was um, what I used to carry my brain around. And then it was like, when I got pregnant, I was like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm actually an entire thing. I'm this entire creature, and my body is not just here to carry my brain around. Like, I have to do all this other weird shit with it. So, excuse me. um, So I started looking at these ideas of transhumanism and where they were in culture. And um, there's these communities of um, grinders or body hackers, and they'll implant RFID chips so they can automatically open doors with their hands instead of with garage door openers because that's such an inconvenience to, like, have a remote control or a key. Um, so there's that kind of thing, like replacing or adding, augmenting. It's like augmenting your body with tech. And <clears throat> excuse me, there's also been experiments where uh, people have been able to control artificial limbs with their minds through the Internet across continents. And that's wild. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's fascinating, right? But it is something we should think about. We should think about the implications and why it is we're doing this and what it could potentially lead to. So there's body hacking. Then there's the, um, like, AI integration, which you have Elon Musk and his Neuralink thing where, you know, the brain is actually able to access the entire internet and then basically at that point the body is part of the internet of things and so that's interesting um and then you have this idea of transgender ideology which is something that says your mind and your body are so distinct that one can be the opposite from the other which i don't think anybody is born in a body that is wrong you know we're we're all born in bodies with different capabilities there's a lot of things my body can't do um but it's not wrong. So that's sort of what I started talking about was like this idea that the mind and the body um, in Western culture, we're moving towards this idea that they are intentionally distinct. They are 100% distinct. And I thought we should point this out. I just thought we should talk about this. We should know what we're doing. We are moving towards this direction of transhumanism without any real awareness that that's what we're doing. Um and so that's why I wrote the piece. It was after like a couple of years of listening to 
podcasts about AI and grinding and um, transhumanism and new ideas in philosophy. Yeah. So that's where I landed. Okay, well, a couple different things. The first one is I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how, you know, you said that there's all these roots in the past, and I, I, I agree with that. I think there is there is something this human tendency. I mean, the the great German sociologist um, Max Weber, he in the book he was writing when he he was one of the millions and millions of people who died of that flu, this mm-hmm. epidemic after World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was actually at the height of his powers. Very sad. I mean, he had struggled with depression his whole life. He dropped out and was a mess. But he'd finally got his depression under control, and he was back working and producing fantastic work. And then he dies of this fucking right. flu. But anyway, but when he was, the, the book he was writing when he died was um, this going to be this multi-volume book on the sociology of religion. He wrote like the first introductory volume and then like a few, a few of the first installments and mm-hmm. then he died. But um, in the first installment, he has this idea which just completely blows my mind. Like it's just absolutely amazing. And I really wish he had lived to be able to, to flesh it out completely. But he says that it's very interesting that throughout the world, whenever you get the idea that the mind and the body are completely separate and that you can have this, like that basically all of the physical world is just like conventional. It's all like a a construct of some projection of our mind. He said, this always emerges, it, it has a sociological origin. So he says, within Buddhism, that idea that all the world is just like, you know, there is no spoon, you know, like, right. kind of like that whole like, kind of like view of the uh-huh. world, that emerges among men mm-hmm. who are totally, they're monks, they are completely disconnected from uh, animal husbandry, from farming. They're disconnected from, they're not married. They're disconnected from, from obviously like menstruation, mm-hmm. um, from childbirth, from breastfeeding. They're disconnected from, uh, the, oh, and they're, dis, they're totally disconnected from military matters. So they're disconnected from anything where you are physical, you're getting dirty, you're slaughtering mm-hmm. animals, you're, your hands are in the dirt. Caring you're for picking children. bugs up, right. you're giving birth, you're caring for children. They're disconnected. Um, from all of these kind of very physical realities of the world, mm-hmm. their material needs are taken care of, and their job is, and they come up with this incredibly theoretical view of the world, right? Right, and and so then he he gives all these different <clears throat> examples, and he says any time this idea has come up. It's come up among people who have this very abstract idea. Now, you see it again come up with postmodernism with people like Michel Foucault. Mm-hmm. And he also, uh, he's, you have like a, a gay man who's living in a city who's totally disconnected from military matters, from farming, from animal husbandry, from, you know, raising right, right. children, who lives the life of a professor. And so you can have a guy who says that, you know, pretty much everything is just you know a product of your of your mind and things like that. And, so, and when when AIDS first came on the scene, right? Um, and he he said this is just uh, an attempt by society to sort of oppress the Dionysian 
outbreak of, of right. uh, homosexual male homosexuality, and he ended up and he slept with a number of his students and infected <laughs> a number of his graduate students with HIV. And did they, you ever read um, Hervé Joubert's "To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life"? Oh, the uh, yes. It's I mean, that's not what it's called in in French. It's like uh, I didn't read the, it. In the French. friend, the friend who killed me. Let right. Me, oh, that's you, interesting. Yeah, the friend that's who killed me. But uh, but yeah, he wrote that, and he wrote that about like he wrote that kind of about Foucault and about his own contracting of the disease and this struggle of the men that he knew to try and get this new American medicine that would that would cure it or you know belay the effects or something. That book. That book blew my mind. It's that very blew disturbing. My mind. Yeah, yeah it's, it's disturbing and also it's so beautifully written, even though I read the translation. Yeah. Spectacular. It, it, it's uh, But to what you were saying about the monks or like, you know, people who are um, sort of otherizing, it's like if you take the physical aspects of the body away, what you're able to do is otherize not just your own body, but the bodies of others. Yeah. So well, it's like the Brahmins. Yeah, you know, they everybody yeah. does everything for you, and right. you are allowed to be this spiritual hovering mind. Right, but and you the, need to be able to otherize human beings in order to embark on a transhumanist agenda, where so many people are not going to come into this new evolved mode of humanity, and where so many bodies are just going to be left out. So I think that's a big part of it. You have to be able to like turn human beings into objects before you can turn human beings into like the next phase of humanity yeah. and also justify leaving so many people just on the table. Yeah. Well, that's – and if you take Max Weber's model about that there's a, a sociological origin for this, it completely f fits all the tech bros in Silicon Valley mm -hmm who are the transhumanists. Right. Because these are people who, they don't make their money in any, it's all just like playing with bits. Mm -hmm. They don't, they're not farmers, they're not raising cattle, they're mm -hmm. not in like the defense industry. They are, they're mainly, mainly guys. Um, and they're, and so it allows you, I mean, Scott Adams is kind of a classic example of this. If you listen to yeah, Scott Adams, he's the Dilbert guy. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah, has yeah, a yeah. podcast and that I that I listened to. I, I actually stopped listening to it because he just got so crazy. Uh, but Scott Adams, he, this guy, like his whole life, he, he rarely leaves the house. Mm -hmm. He lives completely kind of on the internet and in his mind. He's a very smart guy, but his... Uh, a lot of the things that he says are almost indistinguishable from what a, a kind of a Buddhist monk mm -hmm. would have said, like you know, two thousand years ago, or what a like a Brahmin teacher would say. It's this very, very this idea that um, I'm hovering above, and the the material world is somehow less real. Well, right? and that's and true with count. the whole the whole tech ethos is that they're going to save the world. You know, they're like they're they're doing this. They're they're formulating search engines for the good of humanity, and once you put that kind of ethos over top of the work you're doing, that's like a huge ego thing where you are able to justify any stupid process to just to justify that like you're going to be saving the world, and that's a very dangerous place to be. And I think that's a place where um, a lot of American politics has landed lately. Also, it's this idea that like. Our goal is so important 
that anything it takes to achieve our goal is what needs to be done because the goal is so important. And what people forget and that I think is so important is the only thing that matters is how we get there because we're actually never going to get there, right? Like we're never going to get to the place where everything's perfect. That's just a complete fantasy. Mm -hmm. The only way to do anything is to focus on how you're doing it to make sure that, you know, individual rights are maintained to make sure that like people have a say to make sure that, you know, voting rights are upheld, all that stuff, um, that the constitution is upheld. That's my take. But like, that's the only way to do it. That's the only way to do it is to focus on every step of the process because there is no end goal. The end goal is going to change a million times before you die. Never mind before your ideology comes to its full fruition. Yeah. And, we don't want any ideology to come to its full fruition because that will necessarily mean that a bunch of people have been guillotined on the way. Yeah. Well, there's um, Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus. I don't know if you, no, you know, read that. It's, but it, it's a very kind of panoramic view of the transhumanist movement and a lot of other things. But, mm-hmm. but he sees transhumanism as being part of um, one kind of branch of the enlightenment faith Mm. so he he has a very very freaky view of all this but he says that um essentially in the same way that you had the wars of religion Mm -hmm. in europe between protestants and catholics he says the 20th century is best understood as the wars of religion within humanism so he sees humanism as as a religion okay that that is no different from uh, from Christianity or Judaism or Islam. Mm-hmm. And he says humanism um, had three different um, strands. So you had like liberal humanism, which was focused very much on the individual and the the ultimate source of, of kind of loyalty. And what is like most important is the individual. And so that gives you, uh, you know, one person, one vote, Mm -hmm. and the voter is always right. It gives you in economics, the customer is always right. Mm -hmm. And you have to give people, right, that's that old thing. Then he said another branch of humanism is the socialist humanism. And that's like that in the 20th century was was primarily sort of manifested by the Soviet Union and by other, right? And then he says there's um, evolutionary humanism, which was um, represented most by Nazi Germany. Right. Okay. And he says they're they're sort of and the it looked for a long time in the twentieth century like mm-hmm. liberal humanism was going to lose. Yes. That that either the uh, evolutionary humanism mm-hmm. uh was going to get or that socialist humanism was going to. But it that it didn't happen. Right. right? And so they were both kind of discredited right. after after World War Two, evolutionary humanism was discredited by the Nazis and then after the end of the Cold War uh, socialist humanism mm-hmm. was largely discredited. And so by the end of the 20th century, all you have is kind of last man standing is liberal humanism. But right. he says transhumanism is basically another version of evolutionary humanism, yeah. which says that uh, the most authentic human project is not humans as they are today. Mm-hmm. It's where we are, it's sort of like you know Nietzsche's whole idea of like the the Ubermensch. Like right. it is man is a, a bridge of overcoming to something else. Right. So, what is most human and most to be cherished is what we're going to be. 
not right. what we are. Which right? I think is, is, is really crazy because I think so often we don't value humanity or human contribution. Even now, like if you look at the environmentalist movements, human beings are always the problem. There's always this idea that like, you know, way back in the olden days before human beings existed on the earth, it was some sort of, you know, paradise. And obviously it wasn't because the word paradise doesn't exist without human beings. So it couldn't have been paradise if there weren't human beings, because that's not even a concept because there aren't any concepts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're always taking ourselves out of the equation and saying, if it weren't for human beings, there would, you know, be more whales. And if it weren't for human beings, stuff wouldn't be so fucked up. But we're just as much part of nature as anything else. So, yes, we need to temper our footprint. We need to, like, watch where we step. We need to not step on the, what is it, the orange butterflies or whatever. <laughs> but it's like we also need to value our contribution to – um, to ourselves, to furthering ourselves, to making more people more comfortable. There's less starvation now than there used to be. Mm -hmm. But no matter what we do, we're always focusing on the problems. We're never giving ourselves credit. So it's really hard to move forward and say, like, um, let's fix things when all we can talk about is how much we suck. <laughs> you know, it's like I know when I start getting criticized um, – which my family is super good at doing, it's like, you know, what I want to say is like, all right, let's just throw it in. You know, forget it. I'm not even going to try. Like, fuck your expectations. I'm not mm -hmm. even going to get there. Um, screw it. I'm just going to eat all the cake. So, <laughs> like, with ourselves, with humanity, we have to say, like, we're not doing that bad of a job. There's enough whales now that Japan has gone back to commercial whaling, which is not what I think is great, but like there's there are more whales at least. We didn't completely destroy the whales. <laughs> I think um, it depends on the kind of whale. But anyway, right. no, I, I, I get that. I mean there is this kind of self hatred right. that runs through this kind of uh I don't know, like hatred of humanity mm -hmm. that runs through a lot of that stuff. But I think it does um, and it's like very we, much in the transhumanist yeah. movement too. I mean, it's uh, that's Douglas Rushkoff, who I I, I sent you right, that you thing. Sent me some... um, in his book Team Human, he he was like one of the original kind of tech bros, mm -hmm. but he had like this whole Saul to Paul conversion on the uh -huh. road to Damascus, where he turned against all of them. And but he he's known all of them like <laughs> since they were you know, starting Twitter and starting all right. these things. He's known all of them. and he said. It is a profoundly anti-human movement. Mm -hmm. Like that is, it's it's anti-human. Right. And he said, like we need to actually uh, reject this. And it's it's not, you know, they 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 talk about it in very flowery terms, but mm -hmm. it's mainly this idea that we want to transcend the body and the physical messy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he uses very gendered language in his book, and he right. said it's it's largely guys who want to transcend the kind of like. Icky, the icky woman. The, yeah, like the kind of like... Well, that's mm. a huge part of what I've been writing about also is the idea that um, transhumanism and, you know, transgender ideology and artificial womb technology and all of this kind of stuff, it's basically just a plan to obliterate women. It's a plan to just make there not be any women left. Um, not intentionally. Not, like, I don't think anybody's saying, like, let's just get rid of all the women. But why would you need women? If, you know, the, the National Health Service in the UK is 
starting a pilot program, like, or some kind of study where they can see if they can um, put uteruses in men so that men can give <laughs> really birth, for sure. Wow. Why? What? Like, what is what? Like, what is the? What a waste of resources! What an unconscionable waste of resources to completely and it's it's like a just science experiments. But if you have if you have men who um, transition to being female and then get artificial wombs and can give birth, and there's like all this extra lactation stuff. Um, and women are just messy anyway because, <laughs> you know, there's no way for... It's a, a nice mess, though. Yeah, but <laughs> there's... Hey, I'm totally in favor. <laughs> but there's no way for a woman to really get away from her body. Like, by the time you're 13 or 14, you're bleeding once a month. It's a nightmare. And there's yeah. no way to, like, just have that not happen. Um, although now you have, like, so many... I don't know what the stats are, but you have more young women deciding they don't want to be women and that they want to try and be men at that point. And what's fascinating about that is like no young woman that I have ever known from the young women I knew when I was one to young women now would ever in their right mind want to grow up to be a woman. Like why would you want that? It's like a (laughs) – it's not great. It's not what you're looking for. Everything changes and um, the way that you're treated changes. Everything is instantly different. So – but yeah, I mean I think that um, obliterating women – like female obsolescence is part of transhumanism. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very. I I see that. You know, I mean, you you had the same sort of liberal arts education yes, that I had, and sure. like you uh, you see in a lot of like ancient Greek philosophers, they especially like Aristotle, they didn't think women <laughs> could uh, could experience like couldn't couldn't really do philosophy and mm-hmm. they couldn't experience real life because they didn't have. Uh, you know, noose. They didn't have like mind in sufficient right. amount, right. right? And when you when you drill down into why they thought this was the case, it seems to me that it's not so much that they thought that women lacked the kind of the reasoning power. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them say that, but mostly they don't. Mostly, it goes back to exactly what we're talking about. It's that women are far too um, like like farmers and mm-hmm. like workers. Uh, like slaves, they're far too attached to the physical world. Right. 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 And they don't have, so it's only like free men who have like means that they don't have to bother Mm -hmm. with drudgery. They don't have to do any housework. They don't have to do, they can just like chill Mm -hmm. out and like talk about, you know, know, do, do, they're the only ones that can actually, right. And that's, so that this is like a thread that you can find cross-culturally. And it seems to be the same kind of people who come up with it? Because I've never met, for instance, somebody who is uh, is like a mixed martial artist or somebody who's like, uh, you know, I had I had one guy that I interviewed a little while ago, fascinating guy, uh, Rodney Work, who's like the mm-hmm. top, the top uh, sort of lock. He he picks locks like he's a safe cracker. Mm-hmm. Like he's actually okay. like like an Ocean's <laughs> Eleven like safe oh, cracker. That's a good skill. He gets called it. He can like. He can open safes by touch. Mm-hmm. Like he can do all the stuff in the movies, but like for real, like he can actually right. he can actually do all that stuff. He's an amazing guy. But you see this guy, and he's so he's got like arms like this. Uh-huh. He's like very physical. Uh-huh. You, it's always a certain type of person who comes up with these transhumanist ideas, and it's never somebody right. who's very embodied. 
Right. I mean, the other thing, too, that happened, I think, with regard to um, women being historically discounted in, you know, scholarship and thought is that um, it's sort of like women's women's thought processes have been colonized by, like, very um, male way of thinking about things. And I don't think that the male way of thinking about things is wrong or anything like that. I just think that there's probably ways that women think about things because of the more, um, you know, necessitated by their physicality that has been routinely discounted. So what happens is... Um, women have to get rid of a thought process, adopt a new thought process, and then they're told that they can't measure up. But it's like women also are are not accessing the full range of, I think, their intellectual capability because we have this idea that incorporating physical aspects into a thought process is incorrect. That makes sense. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, just sort of a tangent, but you just made me think about this. Did you find that you're because I mean the kind of work that you do did you find it was more difficult to do intellectual work when you were pregnant and when you're like had a young kid like when your son was young no really yeah okay. but I was but I don't know if I was doing intellectual work I was um I finished grad school at Columbia in 2007 and so that's the last time I was writing academic papers and I was mostly writing about Ibsen and no theater and stuff and then um but then it was like after I, – I went to grad school for playwriting. So what happens when you go to art grad school is uh, your entire – like you're kind of completely broken down. Your voice is broken down. And then you are a little bit rebuilt by whoever your mentor is, which in my case was Eduardo Machado. And uh, then you finish grad school and then you're like, wait a minute. I've been completely rebuilt. So I have to completely destroy that now. And then start over <laughs> and see what I can take from everything. So the work I was doing right after I finished grad school was um, pretty homogeneous, I think, uh, polit- politically and psychologically. I think it was good work. It was well-structured. It was well-made play. It was all that stuff. Um, and some of those plays did, you know, did okay. Um, but it wasn't really my voice. And then it wasn't until after my son was born that I started writing a style that carried me through that is still basically my artistic style. And I wrote a play called I'm Not an Allegory. These are people I know. That's what the what it was <laughs> called. Um, and the play was, uh, I wrote it specifically for this club where my theater company was in residence called Bowery Poetry Club, which was um, <coughs> run by Bob Holman in New York. And I loved the space. So I was always writing specifically for that space. And it was like 10 characters. It was all uh, overlapping stories, completely different style. But I don't think I would have been able to write that. Like the way I wrote that was while holding my child. Like I wrote it on my phone with one hand. You know what I mean? And like there's lines in the play that talk about how this is being written on an iPhone. You know, I have one character... (laughs) Who um, and there were a lot of monologues. I don't really know where I'm going with this. I love this play, though. Yeah, <laughs> it was like my favorite thing. But there's this one character who's like, "My fate is to be a boring white woman being written about by a boring white woman." You know, 
And she's like, I'm so boring. My cousins in Maine have the sunlight glints off their hair and that is boring. And it just goes on like that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of different. I Maybe like it's play. different for something that taps into a lot more imagination but, and creativity. Because yeah. I, I, the reason I ask is because Annalisa had a really hard time. Mm-hmm. She's pregnant. She just couldn't think straight. Her attention span went uh-huh. way down. And her ability to think in in certain kind of ways mm-hmm. was really kind of impeded. And I've heard this from a lot of my other like female friends and relatives that when they were pregnant and like with a, a young baby, mm-hmm. that it was much, much harder to think in that that certain kind of really kind of rational. Yeah, work, I wasn't doing you know? no academic work. Yeah. And uh, right after I found out I was pregnant, I was actually awarded a commission. And I was like, I need to get the draft of this play done before I have this child. <laughs> yeah. Wise, um, yeah. which I which I did. There was a scientist, I think, a French scientist whose name I forget, who in her forties ended up pregnant and realized she had to finish all of her work before she gave birth because she knew she was going to die. Oof. Well, because it's not good having babies in your forties. Like that's dangerous, no matter what, no matter how much we're trying to say now that women can do everything all the time. You know, um, my favorite thing about that is what Condoleezza Rice said. I think it was on The View. She was on The View with Valerie Jarrett. So was a, I wrote a musical about Condoleezza Rice, so I watched a lot of interviews with her. And she said, um, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once because life comes in phases. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she doesn't have kids, but she said, I tell my students, life comes in phases. So I feel like that's something. I wasn't, tra- but I wasn't trying to write academic work. Also, I I was telling you this before. I compartmentalize. So <laughs> yes, we should. Yeah, I can just put things yeah. in little boxes. So when I was pregnant, I would be like, okay, I'm going to put this pregnancy in a box over here, and I'm going to keep doing this work. Yeah, so and you're that, able to do it. Well, that's what I it's did. interesting that with this transhumanism and everything, it's all about we want to kind of escape the body. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other. It's a strange movement that's happening in our culture, which is almost kind of in the opposite direction, which is that to say you have to be radically kind of imprisoned in your your right. body, in your oh, and, and in how your your race, your class, your gender, your you know your sexual orientation, mm-hmm. that these things so completely limit you that you know rather than the transhumanists are trying to right. completely transcend that and say I want to be I don't know off like in some abstract place, um, you have this countervailing movement that's saying you have to sort of write and and speak about right. just your own but experience. But I, I think that, I don't think that that's actually that whole identity movement. I don't think that's bringing you back to the body. I think that's just as much of a um, dissociation because it what that is doing is that is about structuring an identity. So it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like you have an identity that you sort of choose to a certain extent based on, I don't know, your background and your appearance and, you know, what you like sexually and stuff like that. But then once you have that, you are also, at the same time as you're constructing that, you are using that identity to reach out and tag other identities that then become part of your identity. So it's actually more of an abstraction of who you are than it is really a close identifier because you're taking who you are and you're, um, you're identifying with an identity. 
So it's not enough to be, you know, like a, I don't know, pick an identity. I can't even come up with any. There's so many. <laughs> but like, it's not enough to or to use like the old dead milkman thing. I don't know if you know the dead milkman. Of course I do. Yeah. We're the same but age. Like, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to see yeah. them all the time in Philly when I was a kid. So, you know, like lesbian, left-handed, albino, Eskimo was, I think, from their super <laughs> offensive song. But it's not enough to be that. You have to be that and identify with the identity of that. So, like, and you can't identify as something if you're then not claimed by that identity group. So it's a, it's a, identity is a communication. It's a, it's still, I, I think I'm using this word right, a disambiguation of who you are. It's not like a, it's not like an internal thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to put yourself in that box. Everything that's in that box has to tag you. And then you have to tell everybody that so that you can be properly marketed to and advertised to. Yeah. Yeah. Into your little demo. Well, the thing is, is it seems that uh, it can be very, very confining for people. Like I know people that are, uh, and of course this changes over time, but I know people who are very, very into like the fact that they're a dude. Like they're really into like their masculinity, you know, and I know women that are like really, really into their, their womanliness, their femininity. They're really into like being like a woman. Right. Um, And, but then I know other people that aren't that into it. So, I mean, obviously they, they know what they are, but it's not, uh, it's not like something that seems to be very very high in their priority list of like who they are like they would think right. of themselves as like i am um like i'm thinking of my sister like i she would think of herself i'm a botanist i'm like somebody that likes this kinds of movies i'm like there, there's a bunch of other like adjectives that would be much more uppermost right so and the same thing goes for then, all like, other kinds of ones. yeah then and I've seen the same thing with like sexual orientation, mm-hmm. with religious identification. Mm-hmm. Like there's some people where um, their heterosexuality or their homosexuality or bisexuality or whatever is very, very central to their identity, mm-hmm. right? And I often I see with students when they're young and they're just first kind of, they're, they're just like trying out <laughs> like their sexuality. Right. They're just Let's figuring out. Doing. They're yeah. just like coming out uh, or they're just like, they're, figuring out who they're and mm-hmm. and for them it's very very central right you know but you see them 10 years later and it's not it's not a right it's not a thing right but to a certain extent like the stuff with gender is um it's being forced on us whether we like it or not and it it's like you have to identify your gender and if you don't identify it someone's going to identify it for you and what's fucked about that is like gender is not the soul and I think we're just putting too much emphasis on this idea of gender as some sort of innate identifier that tells us some huge thing about ourselves, which it obviously doesn't, and which feminists have been fighting against that concept for so long, saying, yes, I'm a woman, that's not really a big deal, it doesn't tell you anything about me other than, <clears throat> you know, what my body is. It's, it's not giving you some sort of whole thing about me. Yeah, And so what you have is like a situation where the more we identify gender, the more we adhere to cultural stereotypes about what gender is, which is exactly anathema to the, you know, feminist movement. Yeah. Which is craziness. It It is. It is odd. I mean, I think there is this basic, <laughs> there is this basic 
I don't know how you'd put Reagan. Reagan said a really he could be very funny sometimes, and mm-hmm. he said a joke. Uh, kind of a the translator actually hesitated in telling Gorbachev because he thought really this guy's fucking nuts. <laughs> I can't believe he did. Like he just thought it was a tasteless bad joke. But Gorbachev laughed and thought it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. But so his joke was, he said, uh, "So you want to know the difference between uh, Americans and Russians?" He said, uh, "An American farmer gets up in the morning, looks out his window, and sees his next door neighbor has like a really nice new cow." And so that night, when he's saying his prayers, he says, "God, I pray that you would give me." the strength to work harder and more diligently so that I too can have a nice cow like my neighbor. All right, he says the Russian farmer wakes up in the morning, looks, sees his neighbor has a nice new cow. That night when he's saying his prayers, he says, you know, God, I pray that my neighbor's cow would get sick and die so that we could both have no cow together, right? And it seems like whenever you're no, trying re- to, whenever you're trying to sort of get to equality mm-hmm. there's there's two ways that you can try and achieve equality there's one where you can kind of bring everybody up right <clears throat> or you can try and bring everybody down right right so you can and i mean um what's his name i'm forgetting the harvard philosopher he's written fantastic stuff on identity and I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, um, but he he argues this. Mm-hmm. He says that if you look at um, our ideas of dignity and mm-hmm. human dignity, mm-hmm. essentially in the West, what we've done is we've taken a, a way of being in the world that used to be reserved for the European nobility. Right. And we've gradually expanded it right. to more and more people. And so he says, like, it, it's a mistake to think that there's this big break and right. then suddenly you get the modern world and you get democracy and you get this. He's like, actually, there's a continuity. And what it is is it's expanding the circle mm-hmm. and raising people up. Right. And so expanding the franchise, it's you like – and that is, I think, the, the sort of the humane and kind way right. to – where you extend rights to more and more people. But there's this new way now where it says like, you know, the way that we achieve equality is by bringing everybody down to the down. same level. Like, welcome to my world. Right. Like, But yeah. isn't that sort of the difference between like equity and equality? Because equality um, is where everybody has the same, like is treated the same under the law and has the same... Um, you know, ability to go forth and seek their fortune, right? Perhaps, maybe not ability, maybe ability is the wrong word. But equity is where everybody has the same shit. And that's a different thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, me and my neighbor both being able to work really hard and see who can go buy a cow is one thing. But like, we just either both get a cow or both don't, that would be a different, that's not equality. That's that's more of an equity type of thing. I think I have that. Yeah, I guess so. But but I also think there's these these kind of macro level issues mm-hmm. that I mean, the you other know, thing if you want to like, have, if you want to have, like, for instance, if you want to have like men and women both uh-huh. participating fully in society and the economy and reaching their full potential, so that they can mm-hmm. kind of contribute whatever it is they have to contribute, um, that's great. Um, but 
we live in a society, and so this society needs certain things of people that transcend their individual desires. So maybe we need to have a war sometimes. And right. so we people need to be able to be sometimes drafted into the military and go and fight and train and stuff like that. And if them kind of being pulled out of the economy mm -hmm. means that they lose their job and they're knocked off their professional trajectory, that's not fair because the society needs, sometimes needs soldiers, right, right? sure. And we need a new generation of kids and we need somebody to look care, like to take care of uh, children and old people and things like that. And women tend to do that more than men. And of course, women are uh, the ones who actually bear, get pregnant and bear children and stuff like that. So but this if, we wanna, if we want to have like... Uh, kind of gender equality or, uh -huh. or equity, we have to make allowances for the fact that women get pregnant and have kids and sometimes men have to go fight wars. We have to like in right, our but we have to. We also have to adjust our concept of what value is. You know, like the idea of achieving your full potential in a capitalist economy is a very like product-oriented way of considering value. Whereas a lot of women... Um, would prefer to leave the workforce in order to take care of their kids. I never went back to work full time after my son was born. It's super important to me to be there and like help him with his homework and do all of that kind of stuff. And that's a big part of the reason I'm doing so much freelance writing because I, you know, I can do that at four o'clock in the morning and then take him to school when he wakes up and like mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So I think that part of the problem is how we define value and how we define potential. And certainly in the last half of the 20th century, there was this idea once, you know, women started achieving more in the workforce, um, there was this idea that that was the correct thing to do, right? That women needed to pursue a career. I had a sort of a personal experience with that, which is my mom, um, my mom and dad are both uh, attorneys, although my mom has since retired, but her, my mom was really career oriented and she had a... Um, she had a very successful career and she worked really hard at that. She worked really hard at that to the exclusion of motherhood. I grew up with my dad and my dad remarried when I guess I was about like six years old and he remarried someone who really wanted to be a mom. That's what she wanted to be. It turned out she couldn't have children naturally. Um, and she also had kind of a total mental breakdown. Is but this the Catholic one? She she's was Catholic. Right, so okay. she's how I ended up Catholic. Okay. Um, much to the chagrin of everybody else in my entire family, <laughs> except for my Nona, who was very pleased that I was Catholic um, and gave me her rosary beads. <laughs> nice. So, you know, <laughs> bonus, Score, yeah. Nona. Um, but yeah, so my stepmother was horrified that my mom could have children and chose a career. And my mom was kind kind of didn't think very highly of my stepmom, who wasn't working, hadn't completed a degree, and was really focused on raising kids, raising me, and then raising eventually my brother, um, who she adopted. And it was like this huge deal to like make this adoption happen. It was it was my entire family's um raison d'etre for like a year and a half was like getting this adoption to happen. So 
I often say to my brother, like, you're the only one of us who really knows he was intentional. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it it really exemplified the conflict between the uh, traditionally motherhood-oriented type of woman who believes that that's her value and that's her goal and really wants that. You know, and motherhood is incredibly important. It's remarkably belittled, um, but it's incredibly important. Kids need moms. Um, And my mother, who was just so focused on her career to the point where even during summer vacations when I'd see her, we even now have this joke that I'd spend half the summer vacation going, Mom, can't they work without you? Why do you still have to work all morning? We're at the beach. Like, why are you on the phone? Why are you doing stuff? And that was before laptops. So she spent the whole time with the fax machine and the phone, which drove me bats. Um, which now my son will be like, Mom, you're working. And I'm like, I know, but I'm going to put it down soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, you know, I maybe it's not typical, but I actually really, really wanted to be a parent too. Like yeah. in my high school yearbook where it says like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh-huh. I wrote father. Uh-huh. And people thought some didn't know me. Thought he wants to be a priest, or something. right? Right. But I, I actually really, really wanted to be a father uh-huh. from um, the time I was, you know, in my teens. I really wanted. To, I mean, I didn't want to do it then. Not then. But, yeah. um, I mean, I didn't do it until twenty-seven. Proper but, um, age. My but son I, says but that. I very I ask much him what yeah. he wants to do when he grows up, and he says, "I want to be a dad." Yeah, you know? I, I guess because I didn't have one right. growing for you know most of my childhood. Uh-huh. I didn't have one. And so I, I kind of built it up a lot that it right. would be, you know, this really, really great thing. And I wanted to, you know, have like, you know, settled kind of family life because I grew up with, a, you know, a certain amount of chaos, right? right? And, yeah, we um, talked about that a little. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I just always thought that that was going to be the most satisfying mm-hmm. thing about. Is it? Uh, yeah. You like, you like it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I like a lot of things about my life, but mm-hmm. definitely that's like... That's the the number one kind of greatest source of right. uh, of pride. Like, and I I really I really like them. I mm-hmm. like the people that they're becoming. I'm incredibly proud of them. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is like when I talk about them, like and and kind of like I I feel kind of they're a connection. Like I know they're separate people, but I also feel this intense connection to them. And so it's almost as if like. I'm that annoying parent that right. like is kind of living vicariously to some extent through their their successes and their But you have to a little bit. You know, you have to because that's how like I don't know if you had this experience, but I felt very strongly that I was held to my parents' standards and expectations of who they thought I should be. And what I try and do is hold my son to his expectations and standards of who he wants to be. So like you know, I want him to be the best that he can be according to what he thinks is important. Do you know what I mean? So in order to do that, you have to live vicariously through them. You know, like you have to say like, okay, what is, what does my son think is important? He thinks that's important. Okay. How does he think he's doing with that? Okay. How do I think he's doing with that? Is there a way I can help him achieve the thing he wants according to like his goals? Not my goals for who he is. My goals for who he is is that he is kind and adventurous and, you know, looks at the world with a certain measure of awe as much as possible so that he can, like, be part of it. You know, like, we were recently, we live in New York City, and uh, he didn't want to, I like taking him out. I call it an adventure day. 
Um, and there's so much to do in New York. And, like, we do most of it for free because I don't have any money. So <laughs> I'm like, let's do this thing. Um, like, we'll take the ferry for whatever it is, three bucks. And I'll be like, look, we're going on this amazing cruise. It's our boat ride. And he's like, Mom, it's the ferry. And I'm like, yeah, but look, <laughs> there's the Statue of Liberty. And there's, like, all the bridges. They run up on all, all, all up and down the river. So we're walking through the city and he really wanted to go home and he was tired and whatever. And I was like, "Han, look around. This city is a wonderland. Let's just stop and have a look at this amazing place where we are. And I just like made him stand there and look around. And he, of course, grumped and he was super annoyed. And then we kept moving. And then later he was like, you're right, mom. This city is a wonderland. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> look at every like I find the light, find the oh, yeah. light in everything. So and those are my expectations for him. Look at the world with some awe, kindness, open-hearted, generous, all that. His expectations have a lot more to do with, you know, he likes music and he, like, plays the piano and he got something, some award with that or something. I don't I was fucking stoked, you know? I don't even know what it is. And I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, you're just thrilled. I'm thrilled for you. So you have to look at it a little bit vicariously. Um, I never wanted to be a mother. I never wanted that. Oh, wow. It wasn't part of my plan at all. I never wanted to do any of the things. I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to do anything. And then I fell in love and I was, it, um, we're splitting up now and everything, but um, we've talked about it, uh, David and I, and it's like there was just an inev inevitability to it. Neither of us wanted to get married. Neither of us wanted to do any of that. And we were kind of like, ugh. I guess we're doing this. <laughs> I don't. I don't see how to get out of it. There's no Annalisa way out of it. Annalisa is on tape, uh -huh. like at a family gathering, <laughs> saying like that she never wants to get married and she never yeah. wants to. She's on tape saying that, uh -huh. and a year later, she, we there were together, and she met and she had to eat all of it. And they brought it up. Really, the, there they was brought the it up. Evidence that she had said, uh. and she she also. Uh, I really really wanted to become a father. Uh -huh. She was. Uh, sort of um kind of conflicted and she mm -hmm. her big thing was she goes i don't really like kids that much i'm not like a kid person mm -hmm. i she didn't think she was going to be very mother maternal right? right but then of course the hormones kicked in and she was like uber like she's super right. super maternal but it was uh, she did not feel like like she wasn't one of those kids that's like babysitting at 12 and like oh my god all me the neither. kids love me uh, like she terrible. was not like no, at all that i wanted right? to be left alone but then the the hormones kicked in and like mm -hmm. she's super super good at it right i i you know i just found that at the point when my doctor said um you know you're almost 35 and then it will be a geriatric geriatric pregnancy it would be much worse so if you want to have kids decide now and i was like well, I don't want to have kids, but I'm not prepared to say no to motherhood. I'm not prepared to say no to, like, potential life. I'm not prepared to do that. So I was like, all right, let's see what happens. And I had thought – I recently wrote about this for The Federalist. I had thought that I couldn't have children because when I was 16, my doctor said that I had polycystic ovarian syndrome and wouldn't be able to have kids um, and put me on birth control, like – like every other 16-year-old girl in my social group. Yeah, they did the same thing up here in yeah. Montreal. It was like, like they were giving it out like... It was like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was like Pez. Yep. So you just take Pez every day. But without really any indication, this is what I had written about, um, without any indication of uh, what the potential 
downsides are. Yeah. Um, so I was just on it for 15 years. And then when I went off it, it was like so crazy. I, I felt like I'd been missing a bunch of my personality. Yeah. And I didn't even notice. But yeah, I wasn't prepared to. I wasn't prepared to. And say you're no. you're crazy, crazy fertile when you go off it. Really? Like, yeah, I, apparently, because because uh, when we it was decided, like six months. it was like six months. Annalisa went off, went off the pill, and she was pregnant. Like, bam, hmm. like really, really fast. It was, it was. Yeah. I mean, but we were still in our we were in our late twenties, uh-huh. so fertility's like still crazy, crazy. Yeah, I, it, I, I remember it was like right around July fourth when I found out I was pregnant. That's my so, favorite holiday. <laughs> your favorite holiday. Yeah. That was hilarious. You're thinking about it, Mary. Oh, speaking of, I got to ask you about this. You probably heard in the New Republic, they had that hit piece on Pete Buttigieg. I can't even pronounce his name. Yeah. It's is that Buttigieg. how you say it? Buttigieg. And they're saying, is that the one where they were saying he's not gay enough or something? Yeah. It was uh. just this horrible, like nasty, nasty article and was attacking him for being kind of not progressive enough uh-huh. and this is he's not a, a a good sort of gay icon and stuff like that because he's really pro uh, christianity and religion uh-huh. and he's really kind of pro military and he's like you know pro right, patriotism he, like, and all stuff. The, he was like a yeah soldier yeah thing? he's like actually like you know yeah um and so it was a really i i i couldn't i could not stand this this article but there was apparently there was a really big backlash against this article uh-huh. and They've completely removed it. If you try and click really? any links, they've removed it from the site. It's uh-huh. gone. It's been disappeared. I had no right? idea about that. And I immediately thought of, because you've written on this a great deal. Yes, right? the, I have written about the that. Fact that um, so, the fact that now because things are are digital and uh-huh. we don't have like physical copies as much, mm-hmm. that it's possible for for things to be kind of edited from afar that they can be taken. I mean, so, so what do you, what do you think about this? Like is, uh, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I like owning things. <laughs> I like owning my own media. Um, cause it can be changed, you know, like, of course it can be changed and it can be changed based on really stupid reasons. Um, and that's, that's just so annoying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, the weirdest one, as I mentioned to you, the weirdest one that I've had, is Neil Stevenson's mm-hmm. new book, his new novel. Uh, on my, I I got the Kindle version of it. Oh right, you told me. And about it's the on thing. on my phone. It's you know where it shows you like the little box mm-hmm. and like the cover, mm-hmm. right? It when I first got it, it said fall mm-hmm. uh, colon or dodge in hell mm-hmm. was the subtitle. Then I about halfway through the book, I opened up my phone, uh-huh. and the name of the book had changed to labyrinth mm-hmm. semicolon fall or dodge in hell right and it was like that for a couple of days and then it went back to being fall and i i have no idea what's going on was there like an update and you kept having to update the book or it just did it automatically it just automatically did it and now it's back to the previous title i have no idea what's yeah. going on i mean what's but the going point on is, is that, that they can they can change the fucking title of the book right. at will and the the thing about it too is like let's say you know you have a kindle book um and there's something that is deemed to be offensive in that book you have a couple of different things going on with that you have like the way it would be deemed to be offensive is that there's some sort of user pushback right so you know users would push back and say this is offensive 
then you would have whoever it is at Amazon at like the data center reviewing all of those complaints and deciding like, okay, maybe this is offensive and then taking it down. So that's what happens with comments. That's what happens with all kinds of things. And the problem with that is that there actually isn't any real intentionality. It's just this shifting sands of standards that aren't actually based on anything at all. Um, it, it would almost be easier if there was an ideology we could point to that said, this is why we're changing the title every five minutes. Um, it's based on this. Th these are the reasons. This is our standard of morality. This is our, these are the rules, right? Um, but we don't have that. We have like, it, it's random. I was listening to a podcast. I wish I had the notes because I've looked for this now a half dozen times. Um, but basically the way that ethical decisions are being made for AI and machine learning and algorithms for search engines and Facebook and Twitter and all of that stuff, the way that that's being done is 100% in the trenches. There aren't any ethical guidelines. No one has studied ethics. No one cares about ethics. They only care that they're trying to save the world and whatever that means at the given time, so long as they're not fucking things up with their own personal biases, which can't even be identified because you don't know what they are. So you better be careful and decide that your biases are probably innate based on whatever your identity is that, as we know, is a communication between you as what has been identified and what you identify with. So there's, there's, no, there's no actual basis to make any of these determinations. At any point, it's just completely up in the air. Everything is flying by the seat of its pants. And that's why you get like, you know, that's how all of this stuff is coming down. And it's coming down in ludicrous ways. And then people's compassion is being played on, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. Well, I mean, I can see <laughs> that there's there's a definite advantage. Like, let's mm -hmm. say if I, you know, if I put out, put out a, an article mm -hmm. online and somebody sends me a message uh, or, you know, I, I was saying I do this with, with Jonathan K. Back uh -huh. We both do this. So if I, I read pretty much everything that he writes okay. and I have been for years. And so I'll read it and because mm -hmm. uh, I'm a teacher, right. I'm always like, you know, correcting. Right. right. And so I'll like see. Oh, right. The, you sent me like a the, mass the of typos, typos yesterday. Like, and also I'll send him that or and he'll send me like typos that I have mm -hmm. for myself. And then you can go and change it. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like fresh and that's nice. Right. That's much nicer than like having a newspaper where these like sometimes really embarrassing ones mm -hmm. right on the front page of the news <laughs> where it can be really embarrassing, right? right. Like, uh, so that's, that's nice about the fact that we can kind of change this. But what we're talking about here is, is no, that's changing yeah. something, changing content because suddenly like in your article, you talked about how that one episode of the simpsons that features the voice of michael jackson right. has been just removed they just scrubbed it yeah so it's just gone and now. they yeah and then there was the conversation about if graining and the creators were the ones who wanted to scrub it then isn't that fine you know because it's not censorship if the creators are doing that themselves but of course internalized censorship is the worst kind i was reading this um tolstoy book about art and he was talking about how he had written this piece and then he was pressed to publish it and he didn't want to publish it. And he was pressed into it and he was like, okay. And then the editor came back with some changes and he was like, eh, okay, you know, I guess it's okay. And then 
he let those changes go. And then the sensor came back with changes. And he was like, okay. And by the time the thing got published, it said a whole bunch of stuff that he didn't agree with. He felt like a complete tool for having let all of these changes go by, for having been pressed to publish it in the first place. You know, worse than not publishing it at all is publishing something that you don't agree with that has your name on it. Mm-hmm. That's a terrifying That's a terrifying thing. Um, I look at that all the time as a freelancer. When I get edits back, I'm really careful to review it because I'm just like, I don't want to put anything out there that is not actually in keeping what I think with what I think. And oh, it can be devastating I'm for a freelancer. perfectly yeah. happy to change my mind about stuff. So it's like if I wrote something five years ago and I have a different take now, that's fine. You know, that's not an issue. But if an editor changes my perspective, then I'm done for because yeah. then you don't have a then you don't have a substantial body of work. So and if you're going along with changes that you don't agree with, that's a self-censorship thing. And if you're going along with changes because you think that a given ideology is more important than your artistic product like that's a self-censorship thing that is just as fucked up as Tolstoy's censors do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean so graining pulling that or like you know people tearing down their own public art or things like that like I think that's just out of line once you create something and it's out there like just let it live let it live and die on its own merits Mm is how I feel about it yeah, and I mean, you saw with with also with Louis C.K. after mm-hmm. he, he got like Me Too, they took his comedy off of uh, right. Netflix. It was just all removed, right. and that was that really bugged me because I, in my one of my classes, my love and friendship class, mm-hmm. I actually wanted to like use part because in light of what we uh-huh. know about his his pervy kind of you know stuff, it actually it kind of makes some of his comedy interesting in a, in a sketchy way. <laughs> like, right. like to understand like, well, clearly this guy was just confessing all the time right. to what shame he had and what a kind of a pervert yeah, he was. Yeah, but I ended, up, I ended up writing about Louis C.K. Um, with Barrett Wilson at the Post Millennial because what happened was he showed up at a Brooklyn comedy club. Like, I don't know what it was called, like, Scum fest. I don't think that's what it was. But it was like oh, something. That, wasn't it like Long Island or something? No, or? it was Brooklyn. It was oh wow. It was Brooklyn. Yeah. So yeah, I heard the comics have thing a history of, of yeah. you know you show up and if you're a famous comic you want to try out a set like you go for it. Ray Romano's whole Netflix special he did at the Comedy Cellar and he didn't tell like the Comedy Cellar knew he was coming but the audience didn't know that they was going to be shooting his but wow. so Louis C.K. shows up at this Brooklyn comedy club and the clip is really funny because he gets up there. And the crowd goes wild. They're fucking stoked to have yeah. him. Why? Because he's wicked funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so when we were writing about that, we were just like, the public will tell you what they want. You know, like stop canceling everybody for these ideological reasons that don't really, don't really matter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like people do fucked up shit. Okay. You know, and like if there's a criminal situation or whatever, like let due process play out that's why we have due process <clears throat> but this whole thing where people are tried judged convicted and lose their entire livelihoods in the court of public opinion is trash because there's actually no way to come back from it mm-hmm. there's no way to deny it there's no i mean i think that's actually the only thing you can do that's what trump does right he just mm-hmm. denies it um there's no way to apologize for it because an apology 
the way we have things going now. An apology is just an admission of guilt. And now you've admitted your guilt. So your apology is meaningless because mm-hmm. you're guilty. Um, and there's this, with the whole cancel culture thing, I think it's interesting because um, for the most part, men are taken down because of, you know, sexual issues, whatever the things are. Yeah. And women are mostly taken down for saying that men aren't women. So (laughs) you have like women speaking up for themselves and that's enough to take a woman down. Men have to like do something fucked up with their dick to get taken (laughs) down. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But like there are men who get taken down for saying, you know, stuff. But mostly this is the dividing line. Women speak up for themselves and that's inappropriate. Just like it always was. Just like it has been for this whole fucking time. <laughs> yeah, it definitely. Stop saying what you think, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. It definitely, it definitely sucks. But I guess the issue for, for me is that, well, what I wanted to know from you is, what do you think as a culture is the effect of removing these things? Because if you leave them there, uh-huh. you can you can kind of critique them. Like, for instance, right. with the Louis C.K. thing, I wanted to show my students clips mm-hmm. um of him and say in in light of what we know now right does this um does this sort of like change how you view this comedy right right because i actually i wrote a piece um uh, in uh, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. called laughing at louis ck mm-hmm. and it was uh and it was basically so started off by saying, I think this guy's like a fucking genius. He's so hilarious. Mm-hmm. But I said, I've noticed an interesting kind of split right. in, you know, I watched with a whole bunch of friends. We watched um, the live at the Beacon Theater, one of his okay. like, stand-up, and we watched it. And I noticed that there was like a very, everybody was laughing, right. but people were laughing for different reasons, right? Some people were laughing because they're like, oh my God, this guy is like a modern, uh, you know, truth sayer he's just mm-hmm. sort of like tells it like it is right. he's saying what everybody every guy actually thinks and, right. and this is wonderful to be in the presence of somebody who's just like saying what we all know to be true mm-hmm. right but then there were like a bunch of other guys there uh who were saying including myself who were we were laughing hysterically because we're like this guy's such a degenerate. <laughs> like, 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 like when he's talking about how like he can never even like go into a library or watch the news without like, like and just always like these like you know sexual uh-huh. thoughts and just my and like a lot of other guys in the room are laughing hysterically because they're like, Yeah, I, I remember being like that when I was a teenager right. for like two years, but uh-huh. that, that ended. I, that's, I don't that have, ends for people. <laughs> I don't have trouble. Like, you know, I can, I can talk to people without like automatically like imagining, imagining porn scenarios and stuff like that. Really? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, but it was, it was just this interesting uh-huh. thing, like how this, this comedy can, can work on different levels. Right. But, um, we didn't really know. I, my my impression was that he was basically just playing a role and a persona, uh-huh. and that he was actually this, this kind of like boring family man who was like a good husband and father and stuff right. like that. And that this was like an act, him talking about. Oh, nothing's an act. But then after all this stuff came out, it's like, oh, maybe it wasn't like all an act. Maybe he was actually, 
you know, right. confessing. I, I mean, I think everybody sucks. Everybody sucks a little bit. It's harder to be good than it is to just be your worst self. So if you can rise above your worst self, even for a little bit, and this is, you know, Catholicism for you. If you can rise above your worst self even a little bit, you're doing okay. And okay is probably the best you're going to do. It doesn't mean like forgive yourself. It also doesn't mean continuously flagellate yourself. You know, like understand that goodness is hard and you have to create the habit for goodness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which... yeah, but I think taking this stuff out of culture means that we don't see where we've been. We don't see, like, what is any entertainment? Entertainment is, it, it tells us about the time we're living in. Whatever messages it's trying to tell us, um, and this is something else, I forget what we called it because I've been writing a ton of stuff, but this is something else I was working on with Postmillennial. Like the, um, whatever messages writers and artists are trying to get across are not as important as the ones that they don't intend. Yeah, that, you know? is, that is so completely true. So it's like if we take all of this stuff out of culture and replace it with, um, you know, our idea of what we should be and like this is the kind of hero we should aspire to and all like that. Like that's just garbage and it's completely disingenuous and it doesn't give us any actual understanding of who we are or what we're about, um, especially if we're just taking stuff out. We have to know where we've been. It's like I remember the – and I don't think it's like this anymore, but I had downloaded a digital copy of Huck Finn. And there's a part in Huck Finn um, where uh, Huck and Jim are escaping on a raft down the river and Huck knows that it's completely against the law to help Jim escape. And he says um, that he knew he was doing the wrong thing by helping Jim escape. But if but if but he was gonna do it anyway, and if he if he went to hell for doing it, so be it. Right? And what's there's so many amazing things in that concept. One, he thinks the law is morally correct. Two, he's willing to transcend that morality in order to do what he thinks is the right, is the better thing to do for this individual, even if everything in culture is telling him that it's wrong. And when I downloaded, the first time I downloaded the, the ebook, it was because I was looking for that. I wanted to quote it and it wasn't in the book. And I had to like go find my paper copy. And recently I checked and it's back in the digital copy. But, like, it wasn't there. And if you take that out, you miss everything about what was going on at the time. And you miss everything about how an individual can transcend immoral laws to do the right thing. Because truth is real. And, like, you know, respect and love between individuals is paramount to everything else. Um, and if we take that out, or if we don't allow teachers to teach Huck Finn because it has derogatory language in it, we don't know anything about who we were. And if we don't know who we were, we don't know who we are. Yeah. Well, I, I remember one of the most, it's maybe, a huge maybe you remember this too, because you know, you, you're the same age as me, but like one of the most formative memories that I, I have is this was just uh, when Gorbachev was starting like the sort of glasnost and like opening things up and, mm -hmm. uh, there was a headline in the Montreal Gazette, and it said that um, the Soviet Union had canceled high school 
history exams for the year. Okay. Because they had changed the official records so often that they actually didn't know what the truth was. Right. Right. And they had like, because the Soviet Union, they would practice right. a, a sort of an early, ver it's much easier now with digital copies right. to change things. But back then what they would do, of course, as I'm sure you know, that like if you had somebody who had fallen out of favor with the party mm -hmm. and had uh, been killed in the gulags or and they had taken off and right. they would go and in all these group pictures, they would like kind of like you just broke out. up with your boyfriend and you cut right. him out of all the pictures. <laughs> like they would like cut the person out uh -huh. and they would do this like shitty Photoshop to mm -hmm. kind of put in another face. And like yeah, I've seen these, crazy. Jordan Peterson has all these pictures yeah. like up in his house of these group pictures where uh -huh. lots of faces have been removed and Talk replaced deep with fakes. other people, right? Right. Yeah. Well, they're kind of bad. <laughs> right. But, and then they would go to all the documents where uh -huh. this person was mentioned and remove them. Like if they were at a meeting, mm -hmm. uh, if there's any pictures, get their picture out of there. If they were on the minutes, mm -hmm. take their, anything they wrote, go back and mm -hmm. remove it. Right. And they would, they That's were using like, level organization. they were using like exacto knives right. and like some primitive tools right. to do this. But the idea was like to, Dadaist. to change uh, to change the past to accord the the records to mm -hmm. change to fit kind of what is happening now the political reality today and this continued uh -huh. to, for so long that nobody it's like you know you see like really kind of compulsive liars uh -huh. when they get to a certain age I've seen it, it always happens at a certain point sometimes it's as early as the 40s, sometimes it's 50. At a certain point, they don't even know what the real, what thing, the real thing is anymore. Like, they've been telling the lie about mm -hmm. that vacation that happened in 1973 right. for so long that they don't know. Right. And that's at that point where you have, you know, what, what Plato refers to as, like, the lie in the soul, right? right. So the, the whole idea that there's the lie on the lips and the lie in the soul. That's and, what, what Ibsen calls the life lie. The life. What is that? The Ibsen thing. It's in the that. um. It's in the Wild Duck. So in the Wild Duck, the there's a guy and like he has this daughter, um, and he believes it's his daughter, but really his wife had had an affair with like the rich guy or whatever. Um, and once he finds that out and everything goes to hell, he refuses to believe it because he needs that lie to sustain his life, and so Ibsen calls it the life lie. Wow. Or whatever he called it in, you know, Norwegian or Danish or whatever it was. Um, but I really... think that thing where, where like the cutting out of the people's faces and taking everybody's name off the minutes and things like that, it's a, it's a, it's a controlling of the narrative, and people do that in their own lives, and you create a narrative to, you know, the story of your life that you tell yourself, and ideally, you make yourself the hero of your life, and ideally you tell yourself a story that you're doing honorable things for good reasons and that you care about people and all of this kind of stuff. Um, although a lot of times lately you see people telling themselves these narratives where they they recast themselves as a victim over and over again. And I think that's dangerous because I don't think that's a very strong place to be. I think you want to, you know, take like life on from the strongest mental position that you can um, give yourself as much agency as you can, even in your own story, even if you're in chains. Give yourself the most agency that you can. But I think this narrative control, cutting people's faces out, things like that, 
we have something going on like that now, I think, in contemporary media where um, you have people vying for control of what the national story is. And if a story comes out that doesn't match with their version of what the story should be, they change that story in order to make it match. Or, you know, they like bury that story or something else. And so as much as we all derided Trump for being such a dick and saying fake news all the time, that entire concept has come to pass. And now it's very hard to tell what's going on at any point. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. What yeah. is happening? Who is doing what? What is the real motivation? You know, like, what's the deal? Yeah. What's going on at the border? Do you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's clearly a super fucked up situation. Why is it fucked up? Is it more fucked up than it was before? Then you see stories like Obama deported more people. And you're like, okay, that doesn't make it better. Or does that make it better? Or did he have reasons that now we don't have? Or what? what is going on? Like, it's not good, but what's actually going on? It's very hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's groups, there's this really cool group that's like doing bottles for the border, um, the New Wave Feminists, and they're like sending all this stuff down to help people. But like, then you see these pictures and it's like, is it a concentration camp? And if it's a concentration camp, does that mean that we should dox border agents and show up at their churches and tell everyone this guy's a border agent? Because otherwise, if we don't, we're letting Nazis do stuff. Well, that only works if it's a concentration camp. Is it not a like it? Uh, and that's a narrative thing. It's all language. Yeah, you know, it's all language, and it's like it matters what's going on, but it's hard to figure out what's going on. And then anyone who talks about what's going on is first judged for what their perspective is assumed to be, and then that is used to color whatever truth they feel they're telling. Mm-hmm. But not by them, by everybody. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's, it's weird. It's very, very weird, and it's. I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to get out of I it. I don't know. I don't know exactly how. I mean, a lot of the ideas that you deal with, and you know, the disparate ideas that you deal with in, in a lot of your articles, you should definitely check out Neil Stevenson's new novel because he kind of plays with. A lot of them, uh-huh. like the transhumanism, everything. Uh, but he also plays with this idea of kind of post-truth world. And so his his story is set in the America of like a few decades from now. Mm-hmm. And basically it has broken down into a kind of um, civil war. And you have like all the kind of rural and red states. They've mm-hmm. become like they call it Ameristan. Ameristan. And, and the, there's the Ameristanis. And the Ameristanis uh-huh. um, have have like their life expectancy has gone way, way down. Their mm-hmm. teeth are all really bad. They have no more like doctors, dentists have all moved to but cities. But they probably have tons of guns. They have tons and tons of guns. They're armed to the teeth mm-hmm. and they live in a total fantasy world mm-hmm. of fake news. It's like Alex Jones on on steroids, on crack. And they're they're really, really paranoid. Mm-hmm. And they've they've got a whole new religion, which is they've reinterpreted the entire New Testament, and they've decided that all the New Testament is fake news, and that it was written by like liberals, and that they they believe in Jesus like as a conquering hero. Uh-huh. They don't believe he was ever crucified, and they're they have they're 
the sign of the new religion, they're the, the, the Leviticans, is the burning cross. But of oh. course, they say it has nothing to do with the KKK. But they have like burning crosses mm-hmm. and they're actually like crucifying people along roads, uh-huh. like in, in rural. And meanwhile, these like coastal cities, mm-hmm. they like they are kind of like city states on the Italian Renaissance model. Right. And they have like they're they're very well protected and they're living in this like very advanced a technologically advanced society where sure. people are living to be like 150, 160 and are kind of trans, right. transhumanist and have like new lungs and can get new body parts right. when they're failing and stuff like that. And it, it's very, very freaky. And it also sort of plays with the whole transhumanist thing because the transhumanists get their, they get their wish mm-hmm. to be uploaded onto like the In internet. In the cloud, right. Into the cloud, uh, but it turns out that they they make a mistake. They think that somehow if you just perfectly scan the brain mm-hmm. and put that up there, uh, you're gonna it's gonna be you. Well, it turns out it's not entirely you because right. you is your body, right? Of course, it's your gut bacteria. It's all these other it's things, the, everything else. So then they start scanning the entire body, mm-hmm. and that gets a better kind of facsimile of like the person right, right. in the cloud. But then it deals with kind of the issues you're talking about where there's people who were born disabled. Like there's this one woman who's born without legs. Right. And she says, I don't want to be, when I die and go into the cloud, I don't want to have no legs. Right. I want legs. I want legs in my afterlife. And they're like, and, and then she says, in fact, I don't want just legs. I want wings. Yeah. I want to fly. Right. Right. And then there's people saying, well, that's not authentic. You are oh, actually like... We have such an authenticity issue. We're so obsessed yeah. with authenticity. And they deal with the trans issue as well, mm-hmm. like where there's there's a trans a trans woman who in the cloud uh, can be, you know, exactly right. how she imagines sure. herself and vice versa, right? So Well, we create our own avatars. That's yeah. what we're moving towards. I do think, though, that we do ourselves a disservice when we think of... Um, all those yokels in middle America as, you know, stupid doofuses. Cause I don't think that's real. I think that's a complete fiction. I think that's like when people call the middle ages, the dark ages, forgetting about just how much technology was invented during that period. Um, you know, that's when the mirror was invented and the wheelbarrow and all this stuff. Like without mirrors, we would have no cell phones because there would be no satellites, <laughs> you know, yeah. like we would have no telescopes. Um, uh, yeah, I think we really do a disservice to the to the middle of the country when we say that these are intelligent people with hero stories of their own. Um, and there's universities and there's all of these pockets of liberalism and the pockets of conservatism are not they're not stupid people. They just have a completely different. No, it's a lot. My family lives. Yeah, there. Like, you know, so like it's not really good people. It really yeah. makes me frustrated when I see that whole like fly over country, everyone's a doofus kind of thing because these people have just as much agency over their lives as, you know, any of uh, us idiots in the cities do, you know, yeah. like there's not, well, I guess it's the, just the a issue different, like it's a of... different lifestyle to a certain extent, but in a lot of ways it's exactly the same school and getting your car fixed and like, well, I guess it comes down to when it comes to what is the truth, right? If, um, if you I mean, like, like Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about this mm-hmm. a lot, he says he, he goes as a trader, I had to like pay attention to mm-hmm. what is cheap talk and what is like. So he says if you ask, for instance, he really doesn't like survey data. 
Okay. And he says, you know, you'll have people that go into like the American heartland, the flyover country, uh-huh. and they'll ask people like, do you believe in angels? You know, do right. you believe in demons? Do you believe like... Well, that, they're leading like, questions. And you ask the people questions and they'll give you all these like answers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe they believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they say, look... These people are fucking crazy. They all believe in like angels and they d- believe that. And it's like you 9/11, asked. You asked. It, what yeah. Taleb would say <laughs> is like, you have to actually look at the way people behave mm-hmm. because people can have all sorts of wacky beliefs about things that don't matter. Right. When, when their kid gets hit by a car mm-hmm. and is lying there with like two broken, do they like say, in the name of Jesus? Like, do they start right. like praying on them or do they call 911? Right. Right. The vast majority of them call nine one one, which means their belief in and the power of prayer. And say a prayer on the way to the to yeah. The their belief but... in the power of prayer, uh-huh. which they said on the survey, uh-huh. which you use as Reason evidence they're that idiots, they're right. idiots. Um, no, they right. actually are calling nine one one just like you. Right. And he said on many many other issues, look at people's behavior. Right. And you'll see what they actually believe. Right. So. On issues like that, I guess what's what's fascinating to me is on the issue of politics, mm-hmm. is that for a lot of people, I, I'd say probably for most people, what you believe about uh, these these issues doesn't have a lot of real importance to you. It's not like your kid getting hit by a car, right. like where you have a real right. serious question. It doesn't question. have a super big impact on your yeah. daily life. So what you believe is largely just... Uh, for a lot of people, what is your comfort zone? What is it more comfortable to believe? Mm-hmm. Right. So you will kind of go with the belief that that is more comfortable, and mm-hmm. that's where I think we we get into the problem, right. right? Because I don't know if we don't have like a, a shared right. And I, you know, I'm trying to think. Also, Nietzsche would probably he would probably uh, be to some extent. Um, he, probably read his his book his uh essay on the uses and disadvantages of history for life uh-huh. where he talks about how history if it becomes too rigid mm-hmm. can actually hold a culture back and hold people back right and so it sometimes it's good to just forget mm-hmm. or even to make up some bullshit story because that might serve life mm-hmm. better so if you have like a, a beautiful origin story of your nation state and that origin story is allowing you to to be like a really great nation and do really great things. Then stick with your origin story. Stick with the origin story. It doesn't matter what the truth was. You know, I um, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. I saw the musical Hamilton um, around Christmas. My mom got like the whole family tickets, and uh, I didn't really know anything. I mean, I knew the show because my mom's been obsessed with it for years, and that's why she brought us all so that she could like talk to us about the show. Um, but we went to see it and, you know, everyone talks about how Hamilton is great and it's because it's fucking great. (laughs) Like, it's so, it's so great. There's, um, and there's, there's some really super key things about what makes it great. Uh, One, the, the format of the musical is not something where you can tell a lot of story, um, because it's songs and it's, there's not a lot of book usually, uh, but what makes Hamilton able to tell so much story is that it's spoken word and hip hop and you can just get that many more words into each song. So you get way more story just because you have room for that many more words because you're saying all the words so much faster. So that's, that's cool. You get like a fuck ton of story. There's also this very, very cool thing about casting. So Hamilton, the way that the casting needs to go, and this is like in the 
script um, is it's all people of color playing, you know, the founding fathers and whatever. So, like, there's a – and George Washington was this super tall guy, right? So you have this, like, really tall black guy playing George Washington. Um, you know, Manuel Miranda, who's who's Puerto Rican, was playing Alexander Hamilton. And Hamilton, of course, was from the Caribbean, but, like, you know, he's a white guy or whatever. The Schuyler sisters, like, everybody is played by a person of color. And what really makes that so captivating is that it takes the story of the founding fathers. It takes the story of, in this case, Alexander Hamilton, because that's who Manuel Miranda was obsessed with and wrote the story. But it takes this founding story from the realm of history and turns it into legend and myth in a way where we can all see ourselves in each of these characters and that's just so cool. You, you know, like, it, in a lot of ways, this founding history, because there was, you know, so many of these guys were slave owners, it's been discredited as, you know, the country was founded on slavery because these guys owned slaves. And, like, sure, that's real. They owned slaves. And that's not, obviously, like, that's that that's not good under any circumstance. That's never okay. But what... Manuel Miranda did was he said, okay, and there's stuff in there about that, but like, we're going to take these characters, we're going to take and make these men of history, characters of our founding mythology that can make us feel like strong people. So there's a song that's like, I'm not giving away my shot. And he's talking about how like, hell or high water, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go hard for this. You know, he talks about like falling in love with the woman and being like, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to go after her. I'm going to chase her. I'm in love with her. We're doing this, you know. Talks about the joy of fatherhood. Um, talks about like, and there's this cool aspect to it early in the show because all of these founding fathers at the time, all these guys with the exception of Washington who was older, but these were young men. These were men in their early 20s. They were down, they were stealing cannons. They were blowing shit up. They were getting into fights. They were getting drunk. They were carousing. And there's something so beautiful about remembering that these guys were not stodgy people writing up, you know, the Federalist papers all the time. Like, that's not – they were just – they were a bunch of crazy people just like Romantic us. Romantic idealists. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I was 23. I did all kinds of fucked up stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, was it bad or was it like – laying the groundwork for a new nation, you know, whatever it is. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Take it out of the history books, turn it into mythology, tell ourselves a story of a nation that's going to make us a better nation, regardless of what the, what the, you know, original facts were. Like, you can tell the story of the facts that's going to give you the strongest place to stand. You know, I think Peterson says this, like, I I drew it up and stuck it on my fridge. Um, Do what makes you feel strong, not what makes you feel weak. And I feel like that, you know, when you step out into the world and you think, do I want to feel crumbled? I don't want to feel crumbled. I don't want to feel burdened by any bad things that have happened to me. I'm going to say, like, yeah, bad things happened to me. I'm strong. I survived those bad things. Not like those bad things made, made me you know, victimized or crumbled up or anything like stand mm-hmm. tall, you know? Yeah. Well, there's, it's I, like the Jay-Z song, you know, get the dirt off your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, my, my pastor said to me, I, 
really kind of sticks in my mind. He said when he first like got out of seminary and he went to his to actually our church was his first his first job and he's uh-huh. still there. Um, he said when I first got it's like this church that was set up by German immigrants. Okay, and so they have these murals, and in the murals, um, all of like you know Bethlehem and Nazareth and like all mm-hmm. the. It all looks like it's in Germany. Like well, there's sure. like trees that would never happen in Israel. And Jesus is actually Max von Sydow. Yeah, like. and Jesus looks like like very kind of like an Aryan kind mm-hmm. of Jesus stuff like that. And the the it's all like rolling green hills. <laughs> like it looks exactly like uh, like southern Germany. And he said, you know, when I first got there, I thought oh, that is so historically inaccurate right and he goes but then like over time i started to realize you know i'd go to black churches something they would have like black jesus and they would have right. like all this stuff and he thought you know actually the genius of christianity exactly has been that it has like been able to morph exactly and you know, syncretism and been able to like morph to all different places and it can and that's actually it's genius is mm-hmm. that it's not rigidly kind of stuck to you know, the Gospels mm-hmm. contradict each other because they were basically different versions of the same story that appealed to different <laughs> populations, right? Right. You so have they, to tell like, the story in a way your audience can hear it. Yeah. And they didn't, they weren't really stuck on like the particular facts. It was, there was a deeper truth there that you were supposed mm-hmm. to get, right? And that they didn't, like the idea that uh, a lot of like sort of scholars in the late 19th century had, especially German scholars, that, mm-hmm. oh, look at all the ways in which the Bible contradicts itself. So therefore it's discredited. And like, uh, and then but later on, a, people really said, like, that. do you think they didn't know that? Yeah. We have documents from like the fourth, fifth century. They knew perfectly well yeah. that they contradicted and they didn't care. They illuminated those manuscripts anyway. Yeah. So they wouldn't have. Uh, but I mean, I guess that's, that's what we're sort of getting at, right? Like, if a lot of this just has to do with with um with books right mm-hmm. i mean cuz if you go back to before we had writing um you everything was oral tradition right and oral traditions were passed down from one generation to the next and like you know if, if homer's for right, example sure. right he he was illiterate mm-hmm. he was he had all of those stories in his head mm-hmm. right and when you have an oral tradition it naturally just evolves over time people Mm -hmm. omit stuff they add stuff they kind of change they put characters in to make it more relevant and so the story evolves naturally what changes is when you write things down right once you write things down Mm -hmm. then suddenly it's fixed in time right? right and so i guess the the argument for that i've heard for for cancel culture and things like that is like look Culture, history, all these things have are always in flux. Mm-hmm. They're always changing. Um, we're, we just have the technology to be able to do that more effectively right. now. Right. I mean, how would you respond to that? Sort of I think the claim? difference. I think the difference is in, in the intentionality. So, yeah, stories change over time. The way we tell history changes over time, and a lot of that happens kind of organically, or at least you kind of hope that it happens organically. Although, I guess most of those Confederate statues were built um in the 20s and 30s they were like in long after no the, it was like in reconstruction wasn't it i thought a lot of them were actually built i thought it was um, like a hundred like years 20s. after the i thought it was like more like a hundred years after the civil war oh like yeah. in the 1960s no that doesn't make sense yeah sorry no <laughs> like, <laughs> um, i think 
I mean, don't quote me I on this, was, but I, I thought think, it was after. I thought yeah. it was like Reconstruction. That's what I thought it was after. Because there was, I remember when we lived Cause in Because it was retelling the story of the South. There was a huge statue really close to our house in Wyman Park mm-hmm. and of Robert E. Lee on his, and the horse is rearing up. I think they took that down. Did they really? I think so. Okay. I maybe not. But I have this one, I have, I have a photograph of during the Living Wage uh-huh. campaign, which Annalise and I were a part of that uh-huh. uh, movement and we took over like the president's building at Hopkins with a bunch of other people. Anyway, all this stuff. But at one point, Jesse Jackson came uh-huh. to speak to all of the student labor action committee, all these right. directors. And he was talking, standing right in front of the Robert E. Lee uh-huh. statue. And I have a picture of him standing like in front of it. Right. And um, he he made reference to the statue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he seemed to have like sort of your attitude towards it. He's like, we need these things to remember where we're coming from. The other thing, too, is I think I could be wrong about this, but I think that statue, and again, I could be mixing it up with a different statue, but the story is kind of the same. Um, I think some of those statues were actually the result of competitions. And some of those competitions, I think, I do think it was that one. I could be wrong. So it was the result of a competition where the person who won the commission was a woman artist a sculptor who got that commission. So in taking down Robert E. Lee, we're also taking down the work of a woman artist from a time period when we don't have that many women artists to look to or to celebrate for their work. And she did the sculpture of Lee. Um, Again, if I'm right that that's the right one, but I know it's one of those. Uh, Because that was what the job was. That was the job. So she got that. So do we take down her work as well? Like, how do we look at that? I think the thing now that we have going on, though, is this intentionality of of changing our culture as our culture is moving. So it's like taking aim at something we can't really see. How do we know what's going on in our culture as we're dismembering it at the same time? It's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of culture. <laughs> yeah. we, we can't do both at once. So if we're if we're looking back and taking down Confederate statues because we want to put up something else, um, there's always room for more public art. You know, put those statues somewhere or melt them down for bullets. I don't know what people do, <laughs> but like, I I think things morph and change, and you know, we can adjust adjust our public look if that's what we want to do. Parks get bulldozed and new ones are made. Um, not everything needs to be landmarked, um, but taking aim, I think, at our culture as our culture morphs along is weird because we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what the threads are, and we're not letting people just d- judge for themselves. We're telling people, like, you have to think about the things this way, and we're going to make sure that's the only way you can think about things because it's a top-down approach, sort of a squashy thing. I have a very unpopular idea also about the Cathedral of Notre Dame which is going to have to get rebuilt. Yeah. Um, I feel like there should be a contemporary take on that. I think reconstructing some, whenever we reconstruct something, it's like in the antiques business, if you have um, a marriage, if you have a, uh, like whatever the dresser is and the top is made from one time period and the, you know, bottom is from something else or was recreated later, that's worth way less than what the original is. So no matter what happens with the cathedral, if if it's rebuilt to look exactly the same, it's still worth way less than the original was. 
So it makes sense to put a contemporary architectural stamp on it, whether it's with materials, you know, or um, style or, you know, putting in sustainable energy technologies or whatever it is, it makes sense to put a contemporary stamp on it so that in 200 years when they look back at it, it's not a, you know, oh, they were trying to fool us and make us think that this was original the whole time. <laughs> it's like, oh, those they added their own touch. Nice. Like, yeah. <laughs> we like it. We don't like it. But it's theirs. It speaks to that time. Yeah. Yeah. I think there should be some solar panels up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would not be a popular idea no. at all. I I'm actually, jumpy. when that happened, I, um and like there was one architectural firm that got out in front of it and they just like put out some crazy ideas and it was a lot of glass. And every outlet took that down. Every outlet was like, <laughs> this is terrible. How dare you? Yeah. And yeah. I tried to pitch everywhere. I was like, come on, guys, let me write about why this is kind of an awesome idea. And everyone was like, no. No. It sucks. Sacrilege. And I'm not like, allowed. come on. Yeah. Let's have well, it's, a, let's, let's throw you know, something all the, up all there. All those things, it, it becomes like, I guess, comforting for people to have mm. have it stay the same. But right. they have, I think it's Clay Shirky. He has that wonderful um, lecture. It's on YouTube somewhere where he talks about um, Shinto temples uh-huh. and how they, uh, they're they all made of wood, uh-huh. right? And so they eventually, they don't last forever the way like Notre right. Dame would. They get eaten up by like termites and by ants and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so every... Um, I think it's like every century or something like that. Mm-hmm. They have this big, really, really important ritual, and they um, the ceremony they and they burn the whole thing down. Oh, nice! And they rebuild it mm-hmm. the same way. It's like Burning right? Man. <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> and so like they wanted to get uh, these Shinto temples mm-hmm. listed as a UNESCO heritage site, like oh. World Heritage Site, and they wouldn't allow it because they said this is like right. not. Real and they're like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, they said, uh, "This has been here for I don't know, like, like fifteen hundred years or something mm-hmm. like that." And they said, "No, it hasn't. It's only been here for a century." Right. And they had a very different idea. Mm-hmm. For them, no, the yes, the constituent elements have changed. It's new wood, right? But it's there's been a sacred Shinto shrine here for fifteen, like, in this, and it's been the same, right? Right, and it's it's a, a kind of a way of thinking about kind of what is permanent. Is it the idea of it that's permanent, right. or is it the kind of the actual wood being kind of right? Yeah, it's it's not it's not obvious, right? Like, yeah, I think transhumanism to a certain extent is a fight against impermanence. Yeah, it's like we want to live forever, and also with the absence of religion, I think so many people are. There's like such a pervasive cultural atheism that it's like we need to um, find a way to create our own afterlife to believe in. Yeah. You know? Also, we need our new, we need like a new apocalypse story. <laughs> we always need to have an idea of how it ends. It's the only way to calm your anxiety. Like I had this, this is kind of fucked up, but like after my son was born, um, he actually had a skull deformity and he had to have cranial surgery when he was five and a half months old which was, you know, excruciatingly difficult for mostly him, but um, also his parents. So I was freaked out the whole time because uh, my the way I operate in life is I come up with what the worst case scenario is, and then I um, 
figure if I can handle the worst case scenario, then we're cool. I don't need to stress out. Like worst case scenario, I would do this. Cool. We're good. Um, and thinking about like if the worst thing happened to Charlie, I couldn't function. I like couldn't figure out what I would do in that situation. I just couldn't figure out. I wrote a play called Radio Mara Mara, which was about that. It was about this archivist who um, – this archivist who goes back to the radio station that's been bombed out to find tapes from when she brought her son into the studio one day. And he was like laughing on the tape and she couldn't remember the sound of his laugh. So she had to like go find it. And she's like listening through hours and hours of tape. And like, that's the play that her and this DJ and they're, you know, like that's what's going on. But finally I figured out like, Oh, if something horrible happened to Charlie, then I would kill myself and then we'd be cool. Like, okay, that's what I do. <laughs> Something happens to him, like, now I can function. Like, now I can figure that out. And since then, you know, I don't, like, he's super healthy and all that. And I don't think I'm at that place where, like, death is the only acceptable answer. Um, But, yeah, like, we, I think as human beings, we have that rush. We need to know, like, okay, at the end of times, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I would do. Here's what humanity's going to do. Here's how it's going to go down. And you have some people who are like, we're going to adapt. We're going to go live on Mars. We're going to do this whole thing. And you have some people who are like, we're going to live in the cloud. And that's what we're going to do. And then you have some people who are like, we have 12 years until the climate is so toxic that we're all dead and all the fish are dead and everything's terrible. But in addition to like our hero stories, we're always telling ourselves the end story. What is the end story? Well, a lot of it, I mean, if you believe Schopenhauer, a lot of it is just like projection. So yeah. you... Uh, he says, you know, you, you sit around with old men and they're like, ah, you know, these days music used to be so much better. Right. Food used to be so much tastier. The, you know, sunsets were more beautiful. Uh-huh. Uh, everything like, you know. Everything say, was better. Every, and like everything is declining. And, right. and Schopenhauer's thing is like, um, actually, you're declining. Right. It's like, you. It's you. Like your taste buds are not as good as they once were. And mm-hmm. so the food doesn't. It's not that the food is that you just don't taste it as well as you did. And the sunsets are fine. It's just your eyes are failing. Like, I don't feel that way about life at all. I feel like. And he says it's much more uh, his sort of radical pessimism Uh is to embrace the idea that um, rather than sort of taking comfort in some sort of like the world is coming to an end, Mm -hmm. just realize like you're coming to an end. Right, Right, right. And the world is not going to the world's going to go on without you but we like, do want to know how the world is going to come to i i would like to know how the <laughs> world is going to end you know like you come up with all these ideas like how is it going to go down cuz you want to know <laughs> you want like popcorn like just yes. sit back yes, and I do. watch watch that the was like apocalypse. my idea of heaven when i was a kid i was like okay so once you're dead you get to like chill out and watch what happens right like you get to see how it all goes down yeah and then you know gradually you realize like Probably not. Your energy gets absorbed back into the world and your electrons go be something else and you don't have any consciousness. Yeah. And that's the terrifying part is you don't, to me, like you don't get to know what happens. I, it's like it's like you get to watch the beginning of a movie and then it gets shut off in the middle. Like what kind of <laughs> bullshit is that? Well, the Epicureans would say, do you remember what it was like to not be born? Like do right, you remember right. what it was like to not be before you were born, of course not, right? Right. Well, they're like, well, it's just going to be the same thing. It's like you, you were like, 
you were asleep, you woke uh-huh. up, you had your time in the sun, and uh-huh. then you go back to sleep, and that's it. You're not going to... You won't be around to like miss it, but yeah, uh, but you should. But, but you to go should, back to your climate you change to, thing, you should get to dream. You should get to dream. <laughs> like to go back to your climate change <laughs> one. I what I think is fascinating about that end of the uh-huh. world story is that for most of human history, uh-huh. we took the weather personally, right? Right. <laughs> so like, if there was like a big right. storm, God hates me. Like uh, it's it's Poseidon, right. or right. like you see like when Jonah is like in the the boat and a big storm right. comes. Immediately, the first thing they look: Did you fuck? Did you piss off a god? Did you? Did you and do we the right still sacrifices? do. It's did exactly the same. That's so funny. They automatically assumed mm-hmm. they took everything personally, and we still like, do. And then one of the biggest kind of achievements uh-huh. of modernity was to realize that uh, things like the weather have nothing to do with you. That there's right. these impersonal process, big processes that like. Uh, the lightning was going to happen anyway. You just happened to be there. Like it was going to happen, right? right? So that was like a big achievement of modernity. Mm-hmm. But now because of like, uh, you know, climate science and stuff like that, it sort of is like taking us back to this pre-modern view where we're back to it. We're it's our responsible fault. for, we're responsible for the weather again. Put your hair shirt on. It's Which is kind of freaky. Us. That is freaky. That's yeah. really funny actually. Yeah, we are in in many ways. We're mm-hmm. kind of sinking back into that that kind of pre-modern that gender stereotypes, <laughs> all of it. We're just we, wow. We're really getting apocalyptic of, uh, here. Yeah, the abandonment so, of modernity is is not a good thing. So I always like to finish with with a question like this, which is, um, what are you working on now? Like, what what kind of stuff do you see yourself doing in the next? Uh, the next year or two. What am I working on now? Yeah, like you working on um, like a particular like subject or a play or a novel or. Well, and it's funny because what happens is I'll I'll get a piece that I have to do, and then I'll do a bunch of research, and then that research will like inform the next four or five pieces that are sort of completely different. But I get to kind of use the same research. Like at one point, I had to listen to a congressional hearing, and it was five hours long. And I ended up using the information from that hearing to, like, write a ton of stuff. I was like, well, I did just trans- transcribe, like, two hours of a hearing, so I may as well keep looking in that direction. What am I working on now? I'm working on a novel. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I don't have too much to say about it. <laughs> you can't say anything. You know, but I, am, yeah. but I am working on it. I'm working on a play, but um, it hurts to work on a play, so I don't not really working on it. It's like in my mind, kind of. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to write a King Lear about my mom's sisters, but I'm probably not going to do that anytime soon. Mostly I'm like working really hard to get somewhere between six and eight pieces out every week. That is an insane is amount of... a lot. That's a lot of productivity. It's, yeah, it's fun though. It's like I'm really enjoying that work. I get to write about all kinds of different things. I get to do all kinds of weird little research. Um, my favorite stuff is when I just get to riff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite. Yeah. You know, I, I guess it's like, it's like a character. You like put on your little monologuist hat and like just riff on something. That was my 4th of July piece that I had so much fun with. I, I would that. find that, I would find that really uh, stressful. I mean, actually, there was uh, a situation a couple, a couple of years ago where where Annalisa was offered uh-huh. a regular column in a in a major Montreal uh-huh. uh, Montreal Canadian um, news outlet 
and she kind of waited and stuff like that. And she ended up deciding against it. Really? And the reason she decided against it uh, is probably the same reason I would, is that it just seems like it would be really stressful to have to keep up that level of productivity all the time. Because sometimes you don't have anything to say. Oh, there's always something to say. I I guess. There's just so much to write about. There was a, I was working on a play with this theater company a couple of years ago. Um, It was uh, an adaptation of William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. So as I do, I tend to get way too in the weeds on my research and then have to scale back. So I listened to all of these talks that Faulkner gave at UVA and he was talking about how like the the biggest thing for him was how there wasn't going to be enough time to write everything that he wanted to write. And I was like, yes, exactly. Exactly. Like if I don't just write it, I'm going to run out of time to write all these things down. And there's so much to think about. There's so much to talk about, you know, and there's so many weird things happening in there culture. Are. One there struggle are, that yeah. I do have though, is that I've been writing a lot of kind of reaction stuff and I really want to get back to writing about what's beautiful yeah. You know, I really like cuz when I was doing art primarily, it's all creation. It's all world forming. Um and that is something I miss. That's why I'm working on the novel and that's why I'm trying to like here and there make sure I'm writing about the beautiful things. Yeah. Well, that's a, a David Brooks in his last book, the the, the Road to Virtue. Mm-hmm. He said that being a columnist, you know, the New York Times for years, he said um may it, so many things amazing about that, you know, mm-hmm. wonderful. But he said, like, the real down thing is exactly what you said. He said he just was so reactive. Right. It's like you're always just responding to the to the news cycle. Right. And it it kind of has this this almost like ADHD quality where you're just always like you're never you're you're never thinking long term. Right. You're never thinking about like long term goals. You're not thinking about like bigger things and you're you're always sort of agitated and kind of like pissed off about stuff bit. and uh he said that just that got to be pretty taxing and then yeah. after his his marriage like broke up and a number of things happened in his life and he was like i i need to not be just reacting all the time right i need to be somehow kind of thing and so he exactly like you he that's where he started writing the book the mm-hmm. path to virtue he's like i need to think about like what's good yeah rather than just like constantly yeah talking about what sucks <laughs> it's right. like it's uh it's hard but i guess for me also what i i have a lot of admiration for people like you that can do this is that you know as a as like a prof mm-hmm. i have like semesters where i suck right right where I like i'm i'm just for either something's going on in my life i'm mm-hmm. my, my like having difficulty in my in my marriage or by something's going on whatever like right. and i'm off my game right and then i i hope that most of the time i'm doing my job really well and then right. i have some semesters where i think i did an amazing job and i blew their minds right. there's not a record of it <laughs> okay? right there's no there's not a record of it what freaks me out about being like a columnist and putting out like six to eight pieces a uh-huh. week is that if you have a bad week there's record of it on the internet forever. <laughs> right. Well, you got to be careful. You can't put anything out that you that you don't that you don't that you're not behind. I was recently um, at church, and it was a different church than I've gone to before. And the father said um, something that really struck with me. He said uh, Jesus was a failure, and I was like, "What? Jesus was a failure?" And you know, I didn't say that out loud. 
But he was like, Jesus was a failure. You know, he like went out there. He tried to do this stuff. It all went sideways. He ended up getting killed for it. He didn't know how to walk it back. He figured he couldn't walk it back. You know, he's like up there dying for God's sakes for saying what he believed. Imagine how sucky that would be. Like, And then the are. lightning bolt struck your father down? Or? No. No. Wow. no. But then I, it stuck with me because it's like if Jesus was a failure and he went out there and just said what he thought, like, you know, be good to everybody, yo. And <laughs> that gets you killed. Yeah. Like, I can't do worse than that. You can't. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> <laughs> or I mean, I can do worse than that, obviously. You... But like, you can't do better, I think, is what I mean to say. Yeah. Like, if that's your example, the best you can be is a failure. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree that's with that. That's Catholicism. It, just, it seems to me that, like, when, when if you... If your job is producing something that there's a permanent record of, uh-huh. it's a little more stressful because it's... But maybe it's not permanent. You know, maybe all my columns will get wiped. You'll get canceled. When I get even more canceled than before. <laughs> than you already are. <laughs> right. I'll just get extra canceled. Yeah, well, thank and you so much for and, coming yeah. on the podcast. Sure thing. It was <laughs> a delightful talking to you and i will look forward to reading your six to eight pieces (laughs) for a week me too and we'll uh, see if that actually happens all right thank you thanks